wife, Lori. We've been 20 years married and 15 years in Alaska serving the Lord there in a church called Church in the Wildwood. Yes, it's the name of a hymn that you probably are familiar with. And uh, we preach the word as you preach the word. We love the gospel as you love the gospel. And it's good to have fellowship and good to have a like-minded kindred spirit with a Bible church here as the other part of the world, it seems like, from the East Coast. And Alaska isn't just all igloos. And of course, we run from the bears there and uh, we protect ourselves in ways. But there is a church there and there are believers there and we can uh, rejoice and fellowship together in Christ and in our gospel any of you come up to Alaska at all, um, please stop by, check us out. We'd love to fellowship with you. Of course, Joey was a bachelor when I first met him, and uh, we had fun down uh, preaching the gospel and, and sharing our testimony and working for the sake of the church in Croatia in the time there. And then, of course, when we were still there in Grace Community Church back west there, Joey was there uh, looking for a wife, which he found, and a blessed family in which we are grateful to meet. Well, uh, I want to open the Word of God to you, uh, so open your Bibles with me to the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. This is the wisdom book of Solomon, a man who is blessed with wisdom by God. He's given an opportunity by the Lord to choose anything he wanted, kind of like a genie, whatever you want, wealth, power, fame, whatever it is you want, Solomon, I'll give it to you, and Solomon asked for wisdom. And God blessed him with everything else because he asked for the right thing, wisdom. And the fruit of that wisdom is shown for us in the, these books in which Solomon has written Proverbs and, of course, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. He's written some Psalms as well. And we are blessed to be able to look at this text here in Proverbs chapter 5. I want to talk to you this morning and address the subject of marriage, the wisdom behind the sanctity of marriage. You can go anywhere in the Bible and I think find great passages to address the subject of marriage from Genesis even all the way to Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the church is the bride of Christ. Marriage is everywhere. The biblical definition of marriage is extremely important to a person who loves the Bible and who loves the Lord with an incorruptible love. Now, we've been traveling from Maine. Of course, we stopped in Boston and we started uh, on our trek up to Bangor, Maine, to visit some friends there and stay there for a few days. And we've been just really in awe of the beauty of this part of the world, especially the churches with the bell towers. And we've never seen anything like that in our part of the world. Our, our buildings aren't any, aren't any more than 50 years old. You guys have 300-year-old churches, it seems. And it's just beautiful. And, and we wonder as we drove by these, is there any life in those buildings? Is there a church actually there? Are there believers there? Is the gospel preached there? And you would know more than I would, and one of those churches we stopped by yesterday was the old church that, of course, is on the grounds where Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher and the man that God rose up to, to light the fires of the Great Awakening in the early 18th century, he preached from in Northampton. We were able to see these and take pictures, and it's just been a great experience for us to at least be there and think about what we've been reading in history. We can actually stand on the grounds of history. And in this particular passage in Proverbs is the subject of marriage, and this comes to mind as I was thinking of these churches. What does the church stand for on this subject? Where are we now? And we are in a different age now. We are now in a different culture shift, as Dr. Al Muller has written, on the subject of marriage, let alone morality. The sanctity of marriage means that a marriage is sacred to God, set apart by God and thus should be honored and protected by God's people. Honored and protected as a blessed thing, as a glorious thing, as something that is a fruit of the gospel, the fruit of a person who obeys the word of God, a fruit of a person who wants to honor the Lord. Marriage should be right in that line. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, and adulterous. The Lord is very serious about it too. Very serious. And this puts us in a precarious position, does it not, as Christians in our culture today. Hugh Hefner, by definition in the book of Proverbs, is a fool. He's a fool. He's going to die a lonely and regretful man. He's going to die one day and he's going to face the consequences of what he believes. And those who followed 
his philosophy and the sexual generation, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. These are fools who would follow such a thing. Proverbs testifies to that. Our culture and our society is flooded and overrun with this, with the perversion of immorality and whatnot. But even just the definition of marriage, as you know today, it is shifting fast. And we are now in the church becoming, of course, accused of. If people drove by your church, they would probably look at you and say, oh, there's that church. They're the hate speech ones. They're the ones who are the prudes. They're the ones who don't approve of or don't affirm of my lifestyle or my choices. And we are going to be the targets. We already are. Our culture has turned what is a precious gift of marriage and the marriage covenant into something now that is cheap and immorality and just do what you want and whatever's right in your own eyes. Solomon, the wise one, has something to say about that. God has something to say about this. And the church has long fought against the obscenity issues and pornography and sexual immorality and the revolution and has always stood for purity and modesty and the sanctity of marriage. And we find this chapter here is one of those critical chapters that all should turn to. And we are in a fight to keep a biblical definition of marriage, let alone just to keep our families pure, our children pure. And we find Solomon teaching his own son, his children this. He considers it that important. He considers it critical to his son's life from here forward until his death that this issue right here is so important he takes up at least four chapters of this book to address the subject. That important for us as well. When we went through Northampton, we stopped by the church there. We just want to take pictures and look at the plaques. And here is the place where Jonathan Edwards preached. And as I'm looking at this beautiful building in, in the downtown of that city, we walked by and my wife and I, we noticed a sign there that had at the bottom of it just welcoming people to come in. And it said in there, we are an affirming and welcoming congregation with, of course, the rainbow flag there. And it really broke us. We were saddened by that. We couldn't believe it. You can imagine Jonathan Edwards was turning in his grave to think of something of his own church and his own congregation, 300 years later had become the complete opposite of what he preached. But this is our culture. This is our society now. And what has the church done in the last generation here? And how do we respond to the shift? Well, there are those who have responded in ways I would not approve of as well and trying to embrace this or a perspective of not wanting to become too harsh or too offensive like sex is evil and never to be mentioned. We don't want to be people like that. And therefore, they've embraced an in-your-face approach now, and we want to just bring it all out and, and talk about it in seminars and therapy and have the conversation out in the open now. And this is the approach of the church and in the pulpit, promoting experiments to try to spice up marriages. Nothing substantial to help the single person, per se, except... One person said, well, go, go eat some chocolate cake. This isn't about you. We're just going to talk about marriage here. Even in some factions embracing the homosexual lifestyle and just taking the definition of what the Bible says and putting it over there and saying this is irrelevant to our day. So the church is all over the map today. I mean, we can't be that. The church has to defend and stand for what the Bible says is true for the sake of our marriages, for the sake of our children for the sake of what is right and pure. And in light of that verse I just read, because God will judge the sexually immoral. In light of the fear of the Lord, we must stand for what is right and true. Well, Proverbs has something to say. So turn with me now in chapter 5, and here we have Solomon speaking to his son, giving him counsel and wanting to instruct him in wisdom. Wisdom, which is skillful living before the eyes of God. It's not just being smart, it's being wise in light of what is righteous and true and holy before the eyes of God and honoring the Lord with my life. I want to know with discretion what is the right way, what is honoring to God, and what will glorify Christ in my life. That's wise. And then living it, living it in light of what he has told us. Proverbs has something to say and that, that I believe will put things in the right perspective on the subject in this corrupt perverted generation. And Jesus has plenty to say about marriage. He actually calls his church his bride. 
And he considers the consummation of salvation a means of like a marriage and a betrothal of a bride to the husband and he being the husband taking his bride there. Marriage is very important in the eyes of God. Even in Solomon's day, the dangers of sinning in this area and taking what is sacred and and to be sanctified and perverting it was there. His own father, David, and his own mother are an example of this. In the law, Moses describes the horrifying terms, what was grossly perverted in the culture of the Canaanites. As Moses said of the children of Israel and warned them and said, you're going to go into this land, you're going to take possession of this land, and you're going to find this land corrupted, especially in the area of immorality. And in Leviticus 18.3, it says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then he goes and describes that in chapter 18 of all sorts of lewd relationships, things that are almost embarrassing to mention and speak about adultery and bestiality and even pedophiles and incest. Then the explanation Moses gives in that chapter as to why God judged these people For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Those are some terrifying terms. Those are things that should get our attention, especially in light of our culture today. God is very serious about this subject, and so we should be too. In the Bible's perspective, to live a pure and chaste life in the midst of a morally perverted and corrupt culture is not only possible, it's wise, it's needful. It is a life lived in the fear of the Lord where we should be. And as much as we can keep our children from being exposed to our morally debauched culture, we are better off teaching them what Solomon has taught his sons. And so this is Proverbs 5. Let me read the text for you. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. Here's a simple chapter on two things, wisdom and foolishness. In the context of a marriage, what's wise in a marriage and what's foolish in a marriage? Or relationships in the area of sexuality, in the area of intimacy, what's wise, what's foolish? What's blessed and what's cursed? What leads to life and what leads to death? 
what leads to destruction and ruin for the person who chooses one as opposed to the other. I want to look at five lessons here that Solomon actually gives us in this text that will help us in the subject of marriage, in the subject of adultery, that will help guide us into wisdom on this subject so that we can hold marriage, as, as the Hebrews author writes, in a high honor and also avoid God's judgment because God, again, judges the sexually immoral. Five lessons. The first lesson is this. It's found in verse 1 and 2. It's for you parents. It's for you parents. The parents' role. There is a role here. There's a place for you to help our generation and our church and the next generation to embrace what God has said, to believe it and live by it and live in a wise way. And the parents' job is to teach, is to instruct, is to impart wisdom says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. I got something to tell you, and you need to listen. This is not a private thing. This is none of my business. This is not that issue at all. It's not let them explore themselves and, and carry on whatever impulses. It is not that at all. Indeed, the Christian parent must take an active role in teaching their children. So the parent's role is the first thing we see Solomon doing, and he's doing a fantastic job here throughout the whole book. He says, my son, listen to me. My son, pay attention to what I'm instructing you. My son, don't go this way. My son, go this way. My son, I've got things to tell you. You can include into that daughters. This is children. He's a, he's a father. He's a parent. Both mother and father take up the responsibility to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you must be proactive in light of the dangers, in light of the landmines that are out there in this culture that's getting worse, it's getting more in your face, more wanting to tolerate what we at one time were not tolerant of in our culture, and only the church now is intolerant of sin. It's not up to the schools to teach your children about sex ed, it's up to you father and mother. It's not up to some health official or a doctor, even a TV documentary. Here we have Solomon, by example, taking it upon himself to bring this instruction to his own children. So keep that in mind. Verse 7 and 8 tells us, now, O sons, listen to me. Demands them to listen. God has given you parents, children, to guide you in wisdom, to guide you. So listen to them. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. These are not optional. These are extremely important to your soul, as we'll see. Keep your way far from her. There's a warning there. Watch out. I'm of helping you to avoid what is going to be disastrous to your soul. So he's informing his son about deadly choices, about bad decisions, about what's the danger out there. He's helping his son to be discretionary. Discretion means the freedom to make choices about right and wrong, making proper decisions, and he wants them to have discretion here. And it's my job as a father to help my children have discretion, to instruct. So take that lesson dearly to your heart, parents. And he indicates here, my son, watch out for the adulteress. My son, embrace, that is, and enjoy the wife of your youth. So really, we're not talking about a seven or eight-year-old child. We're talking about a child who's already married. You have a wife, the wife of your youth, and maybe not, but you will have at some point. Here's an older child even, and he's carrying on in the instructing and helping and counseling and advising. And so we have a great perspective here of wisdom teaching. He's not just giving them the rights and wrongs. He's now explaining to them, and that's what wisdom is, explaining, giving reasonable explanation as to why it's right, why it's wrong, why it's important for you to listen to me See, marriage satisfies that drive. Forsaking your marriage covenant is risky. It is dangerous, especially before God. Adulterous acts are like, in a sense, giving yourself over to the hunter who's seeking prey with temptations and subtleties and, set, and deceptions and strategies to take its prey. Consequences follow these decisions. So parents... Take up this responsibility. And if a child fails morally here and there's trouble with the child's life, the first thing, if I was a counselor and I have these in counseling situations and parents coming to me and talking and asking, we're in, we have problems with our children and they've fallen off the bus here and they've 
chosen a different route, my first question to them is always, well, how has been your parenting? What's been going on? I want to know. There's a possibility you have failed as a parent to take up this proactive approach to raise your children in wisdom. So, the parent's role, that's the first lesson. Let's look at the second lesson. That's the danger revealed. The danger revealed is in verse 3 to verse 6. It says, For the lips of the forbidden woman are drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil. Smoother than oil. There's someone and something here that is a danger to you, and I want to reveal that to you. That's wisdom. I want to explain something to you, things that you don't know yet, but you will know, and I want to give you with fair warning about these things to help you understand and to see these when they come and to avoid them and to flee from them, like Joseph fled from the potential adultery of Potiphar's wife. He gives a description of an adulteress here. Of course, he's speaking to his son, and so the danger here in the adultery would be some woman, and he describes her as this forbidden woman, this forbidden woman. She's not the only problem. If you switch this around and he's speaking to his daughter, it would be the forbidden man, this adulterer. You can do that with this. He's speaking specifically to his son here, though. The sinful pathway here, he's saying, for Solomon's son is personified, therefore, in this adulteress. She's not a prostitute. She only acts like one. She's actually an adulteress. She is married. In chapter 2, Proverbs, verse 16 to 19, he says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, there's that term, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. There's the warning. This is the same warning here. Watch out for the forbidden woman. Watch out for this lust, this temptation. It will destroy you. It will bring great harm to you, your marriage, your children, your family, and for us in the church, the testimony of the church and the gospel. Watch out for this. There's a danger here that's revealed. She's called a forbidden woman, which means a strange woman, estranged from society, alienated, illegitimate to the social mores of life, unauthorized is another way to translate this. She's astray and deserted and abandoned her previous relationship. She's astray from what's honorable, what's right, what's life, and she's pursuing death, and she's looking to bring someone with her. So avoid her. Avoid this sin. And there's an assessment of her ways here. Very interesting description Solomon gives us. Look what he says. First, her appealing words. And there's empty words here. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Oh, it tastes good, doesn't it? Dripping like honey. It's sweet to the taste. And her speech is smoother than oil. It's smooth. It's alluring. It's sensuous. But here's the contrast. Here's the reality of it. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood. It's not honey. It's poison. It's poison. It's appealing to the flesh, these things. But a good Christian, uh, one who understands what the Word of God says, one who understands holiness, understands that not all that appears as appealing is what it says it is. We have to have discretion here. The promises are there, the promises of pleasure, but they end up being painful. In chapter 9, verse 17, another description of her, she says, and here's her words, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Those are lies. Those are lies. Those are deceptions coming straight from the pit of hell. Chapter 7, verse 21 With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. It's very compelling. It's so dangerous for us, and we know that. We understand that. We all struggle in some way with lust, with the temptations, and Satan knows that, and so we have to fight this and battle this. It's the words here that I want you to take note of, appealing words, but the bitter consequences for sure. Her life is a big lie. Her words are a lie. As he says here, they're sharp, in verse 4, as a two-edged sword, cutting and doing damage, painful, deadly results to these things. Watch out. 
especially in light of God who judges those who are sexually immoral. Chapter 13, verse 4, again, of Hebrews. This may be God's providence in bringing the sowing of this type of activity will reap the judgment of God, will reap the two-edged sword. There's a spiritual judgment as well here. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. Of course, going down to death and the path of Sheol, death is the end of this road. This is the banquet in the grave. It's a place of the, of the dead is Sheol. And in the law and under the covenant of God in the Old Testament, and Solomon would know this, the judgment of adultery is capital punishment. Very practical, but there's a spiritual judgment. It is God's law. It is God's call. The one who commits sin will die. God has brought that judgment. The punishment for the adulterer is just that, sent to the grave for such moral apostasy against God's law. This is a serious matter. This is the danger revealed to us. And there's a senselessness to it. Even though there's the law, even though this is the result, and there's great danger in going down this path, and her feet is going down that pathway, that's how Solomon lays out the righteous life from the sinful life. There's one pathway, the righteous. There's the other pathway, the sinner. That same righteous life is the wise life. The righteous of, or the pathway of the sinner is the fool's life. That same route, even though there it is before their eyes, look what he then says in verse 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. Totally senseless, mindless in the pursuit of this sin does not ponder, doesn't consider what they're doing, doesn't even think about it being right or wrong. That's her route. This is the route we must avoid. This is the route we must teach our children and teach ourselves. Watch out for this. This is a bad road. This is a death road. Her ways, in a sense, she's wandering. The word here is to stagger like a drunkard, just carrying on, walking down the street with no sense, heading right into danger. Like an ox goes to the slaughter, he describes it later. She doesn't know it. There's no regard. This is the relationship that poses a danger to Solomon's son. It poses a danger to my children. It poses a danger to me and to you. There's a danger here, and it's real, and it is life today. And our culture is embracing it and thinking, this is good. We're not going to call this sin anymore. It's just an alternative lifestyle. It's just acceptable. As you've seen in the news, the Donald Sterling thing with the owner of the Clippers, they're all up in arms over the issue of racist things, and yet right underneath the racism is his adultery right in the face, and no one made a single complaint about that, did they? We've embraced it in our culture. But it's that that leads to death. Chapter 6, let me just read a few of these for you. Chapter 6, at the end, chapter 7, chapter 9, all of them address the same subject here in new light and different ways. It's very important to Solomon that he communicates this to his children. And by the way, because it's so important to him, it should be important to us. Why Solomon knows this, even though he blew it in his life, he saw it in his father. He is conceived as a result of a marriage between Bathsheba, but the son before him came as a result of adultery. And so he understands these things. He knows the dangers. And yet in chapter 6, verse 23 to 26, he describes it this way. For the commandment is a lamp, teaching a light, and the proofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in, her, in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelids, her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. You are the prey. You are hunted by this. Chapter 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice. Here's Solomon looking down and watching life. And I've seen among the simple and I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. How's he lacking sense? Because he's passing along the street near, the, near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, 
Not in the broad daylight, but when he can kind of conceal it, right? In the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet go down or do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. And you know what the result is now. And they enter in to this disaster. Chapter 9, I want you to look at this. Chapter 7 just describes her, this nighttime, the seduction, the persuasiveness, the temptation. No one's going to find out. And then it's like an ox leading to the slaughterhouse. Verse 22, 23. Chapter 9, he uses a different picture. He calls it a banquet. There's the banquet of the wise woman and then the banquet of the foolish woman. And it's an interesting way as Solomon teaches his child here, two women in his life. And the, the women are really just foolishness and wisdom. One is Lady Folly, she's the fool, and the other is Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is described for us there in chapter 8. And so this is the right woman or this is the right pursuit in life, go after this, and then this is the danger, it's the lady folly. And then in chapter 9, he plays out this game here where one is offering a banquet. There's a feast, and the feast here is food, but it's really wisdom. And then the other is offering a banquet too. Watch how it plays this out, chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women, to call from the highest places in the town, inviting all, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I've mixed, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a son gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury, do not reprove a scoffer, and it continues on. Here's this woman, here's wisdom calling in the streets, come to me, come eat at my table. The word of God, truth, wisdom, insight. Verse 13, the woman folly is loud, she is seductive, knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, so now you have another voice in the street. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, just like woman wisdom, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way, whoever is simple, let him turn in here, and to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant, there's her banquet, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, in her backyard is a cemetery, and the other one is life, in this banquet leads to death. There's the warning. There's the danger. The danger that no one wants to really look to the long, look to the future and say, well, no, I'll never go there. It'll never get that far. It'll never be that bad. I'll just stop short of when it gets really bad. You don't know when that is. Like an ox to the slaughterhouse, the foolish child, the foolish man, the foolish woman goes. There's a danger there. So we can summarize these temptations, the flattery, Seductive lies. Beauty is more desirable than purity. Instant gratification. Temporary satisfaction that only leads to harm. No discretion to avoid sin. No consideration of the consequences. What I sow, I'm going to have to reap. No consideration there. I just go with what my flesh tells me. My feelings tell me. What I want. There's a danger there. That's the danger he wants us to avoid. The danger here, a real danger, the lifestyle that the church cannot affirm, we cannot embrace, we must uphold what is pure and right and holy for the sake of just your well-being, let alone for the honor and glory of God and Christ in the church through marriage. Let me take you to the third lesson, the cost of recklessness. There is a cost. That's verse 7 of verse 14. I'll just walk through this real quickly. And now, O sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, 
your years to the merciless. And I love what Solomon does here. This is will, real wisdom teaching. This is not just do's and don'ts. That's what law is, Ten Commandments. He takes the Ten Commandments, he takes a specific commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and then he lays out by way of wisdom explanation why you shouldn't do this. What's so bad about this? Why is this dangerous? Why should I avoid this? Who is Solomon to tell me this anyways? And Well, maybe their opinion on this is just, they're, they're irrelevant. We got a different lifestyle today. It's safer now. It's approved now by the culture. Well, there's a reason why you'd avoid this. Lest you give honor to others, verse 9, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. What are they consumed by? The sin, the consequences of this. And you're going to complain at the end, oh, I hated discipline. I didn't listen when the Word of God was speaking to my heart. I wanted to listen to my flesh. How my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, including my mom, my dad, my pastors, my loving friends who love me enough to reprove me. I'd rather listen to the enemy who would kiss me. I did not listen or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Here is Solomon picturing this person who has gone that route. They're at the end of this, and they look back at the consequences, and he's just telling his son, this is where you will be. This is what you'll be saying. This is what you'll be experiencing. This is what you will know. This is what Hugh Hefner will know. This is what anyone who follows that lifestyle will know and experience. Don't go near that house. Don't go near that door. Flee youthful lusts. Keep yourselves far from the opportunity and temptation. Paul says in Romans, don't even give opportunity to the flesh here because of the disasters, the recklessness, the cost of it. There's a loss of honor, he says. You will give your honor to others. This may be speaking of his possessions, his wealth, but I believe the word here is even more to that, the honor of in society, the shame and honor culture of that day, you will lose it. You'll have no honor. The dignity, the glory, the reputation is gone. The shame will be yours. The shame in a community, like a prodigal son here. This is what you'll experience. Your years to the merciless, the years of hard labor, everything you've built up, even in your marriage, the years of a marriage crashing down because of this one act, because of this route I chose. Loss of honor, public disgrace, that's the cost. Also, a loss of strength in years, the idea of the cruel one has taken the years of your life away. They take their fill of your strength. Your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Basically, you're, you're paying for what could be here, that alimony. You're paying off what you shouldn't have to if you had just listened to instruction of the Word, instruction of your teachers. And at the end of your life, you're groaning. So you're, you lost the wealth, you've lost the reputation, the adulterer has stolen this all from you, and in a sense, this adulterer has given it away, wasted it away. The physical condition is now broken beyond repair. I'm groaning, my flesh and my body are consumed, and we can easily put AIDS right in there, or any disease, any damage that this does physically broken due to sin. Nobody considers the waste of life that could result from an act of infidelity. No one considers that when they're doing that. It's afterwards that they realize the danger. And so wisdom says, let me warn you about this. Pursue the righteous life. Pursue purity. Honor the marriage. Keep it sanctified. And the mental anguish, spiritual conviction, you see that in verse 12 13 and 14. He's mentally broken. He has spiritual conviction just screaming in his conscience. He didn't listen to his conscience. And he's at the brink of utter ruin, he says. I hated discipline. There's this self-incriminating going on here. And it's good. It's good. Maybe at this point it has led him to repentance. 
At the brink of utter ruin in an assembled congregation, the idea there, he's brought to court and judgment in those cultures, in those villages. They would judge those who were adulterers with capital punishment or scourging, a loss of reputation in the community, public denunciation, excommunication. They were very serious about that. Today, it's celebrated. But in the church, we cannot go with the culture. We must go with what God's Word says. We must look down on this and say, this is bad, this is horrible. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be a call to repentance. Because of this high-handed disregard for the covenant of the Lord and His covenant with His wife, He has experienced a personal shame and disgrace. He's humiliated by it, and that is the cost. That is what He's reaping. You cannot avoid that. You cannot wipe that away unless you turn to Christ. And you find in the gospel the promises of forgiveness. Chapter 28. You look at these two, two verses, in verse 13 and verse 14. I don't want to picture a hopeless situation for maybe someone here who has gone through this, who has experienced this infidelity in their life. I don't want you to be hopeless here. This is just reality. This is just Solomon telling you, this is what it is. This is life. But there's hope in the gospel because we have a gracious God. And this is what chapter 28, verse 13 says. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He'll just go down that road and he'll experience those things as this man is. But, but, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There is repentance, there is mercy. See, Jesus is a forgiver of sinners. He's a forgiver of those who are sinners beyond what we would say. This is bad sin. There is no bad sin. The cross is paid for that. It is all sin. It is all horrible. Even David committing adultery in Psalm 51 There is mercy there with God who forgives and wipes away sin. And we can rejoice in that. God gives mercy to the repentant. Jesus ate with sinners because he didn't go to the healthy. He didn't go to the righteous. He came to the unrighteous. He came to the sick. And he healed their hearts as they repented and came to him. And he washed them. And they turned from their sin. And they found forgiveness in Christ and renewal and restoration. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Did you know the church in the first century, especially the church at Corinth, was made up of such people who experienced everything that Solomon is saying here. They have lived this lifestyle. They've experienced the consequences of that. And yet, as he says, such were some of you But you're washed, you're cleansed, you're sanctified, you're justified in Christ. That's the church. We know these things, we understand them, but we don't want to live these things. We don't want to experience these anymore. We want to turn and find Jesus, one who rescues us from such sin. So there's costs, but praise God, the cost was paid at the cross, the ultimate cost. Fourth lesson The fourth lesson is is what I'll call the put-on side of marriage and the sanctity of marriage. There's always, when you're looking at sin and addressing sin in your life, there's a putting off, renewing of the mind, and putting on, Ephesians chapter 4. This is the put-on side. The put-off here is already described. You don't want to go this route. You want to avoid this sin. You want to take my counsel. You want to stay away from this. That needs to be put aside, and this is what you need to put on in its place. Verse 15, the blessedness of marriage. The blessing of marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. So how do I fight? Here, here's the question. As we learn this, how is the young man to do spiritual battle in a corrupt culture like this with everything that's bombarding us, all the immoralities? How do I live a pure life without becoming some monk? Which, by the way, you won't live a pure life as a monk. 
in some hill somewhere, and we got those out there in Alaska. People just kind of leave society and live on their own in some cabin up in the middle of nowhere, thinking they can, they can avoid the problems of culture. They just brought sin with them because their heart is a sinful heart. Well, how do we, how do we live a blessed life? How do we avoid this? His counsel here is to get married and to be committed to this covenant with your wife, the blessing of marriage. Put on an honorable marriage. And he uses the allegory of water here. An allegory, a picture of water. Drink water from your own cistern. I don't know if any of you have been to Israel before. I've been there once. And I walked in, it's called the, the, the Herodian. It's where Herod had one of his, I guess, summer homes or winter homes or whatever it was. And he had cisterns dug out below the place where he lived. And they're about the size of this facility here, maybe a little bit smaller. Huge cisterns of water. They filled them up, and this is how they got water, because they're out in the desert. Water is scarce in Israel. Most of the time of the year, you couldn't get water at a stream. You'd have to have a cistern to get that. So it's a precious thing. It's protected. You don't just spill it out everywhere and, and waste it. And he pictures that as your marriage. You don't just waste and throw it into the street gutter. Should your springs be scattered abroad, he says? Don't waste it in public. And that may be a picture of fathering children with others. No, with the wife of your youth. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers. Sexual desires are spread out in the streets is the idea here, where you're just living like our culture. No, let it be your cistern. This is a blessing of the Lord. This is a provision of the Lord to be satisfied here, the blessing of marriage. Interesting statistics. I was reading a found one Nashville man who was in court because he was settling tens of thousands of dollars of unpaid child support. But he had revealed, and the problem was, he had 22 children by 14 women. He's 33 years old. 22 children by 14 women. He outdid the Duggars on that one. And then there's one Dayton man, Dayton, Ohio, 12 sons, 15 daughters by 17 women. He says he knows of others. He said, admittedly, I know others had more than 60, 70 children. And this is America somewhere. Another statistic shows one in five women in the U.S. have children from multiple dads, one in five. And of course, that statistic can be seen in a lot of ways, but that's not a good statistic. This is not following the wisdom of Solomon who says, drink water from your own sister in the allegory. What's he saying? It is a relationship of honor and purity. Marriage is a relationship of honor and purity. It's most honorable here. In verse 30, chapter 6, people do not despise a thief if he steals to, to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. So here's a thief. If he's caught, he'll have to pay back. But they don't despise him because he's hungry when he does this. But verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse Though you multiply gifts, and here is the other man in the story. And this is a bad picture. Think of the disgrace, but marriage held in high honor is one of purity and honor. It's forbidden outside of that. It's also an investment of the satisfied life. Be blessed, he says. Look at these words. Be blessed. Rejoice in. Fill, let it fill you at all times with delight. And then he uses the word intoxicated. I love that word. Tendly, tend to look at that word intoxicated as a bad word. Intoxicated with booze or with drugs or whatever it is. That's a negative. That's a sin. But in this sense, he uses it in the blessed sense. Be intoxicated. You're encouraged to be intoxicated with your wife or your husband in this relationship. This is a good thing. This is a blessed thing. It's a sanctified thing of the Lord. He wants to communicate that to his son. It's the best human relationship imaginable. You can be satisfied fully with it and not think that the grass is greener in some affair somewhere else. This is the wise relationship. And then he gives this picture of an exclusive covenant. 
It's exclusively yours. He says, your own cistern, your springs, your own well, for yourself alone, not for strangers. So we protect it. We guard it. It's precious. It's my own water, in a sense. In in a desert, here is my satisfaction. Here is my wellspring that God has so graciously provided. Water springs are so precious and coveted in Israel, just like the marriage union. So renew your mind, is the counsel here, about the blessedness of marriage. Put on this blessedness that God has given, and you'll be rewarded. Teach your son how to treat his wife. Teach your daughter how to treat your husband. To be totally fulfilled in this marriage, to look forward to it. Solomon doesn't really know anything about the idea of falling in and out of love in marriage. He just says, look, it's blessed, so drink. Be satisfied, rejoice, be intoxicated. He doesn't understand the idea of growing bored or disinterested in a marriage. It is a proactive thing here to pursue this love. So this is the counsel, the blessedness of marriage. Fifth and last and I think this is what caps the whole thing off. It's in verse 21 to 23. We'll call it the theology of restraint. The theology of restraint. He just counsels through wisdom about marriage, wisdom about what to avoid, and then he packs this with theology. Everything up to this point, he's appealing to experience. He's appealing to common sense. He's appealing to what the law says. He's appealing to what he knows what he knows his son or his daughter is going to experience one day or see, and he wants them to avoid. Everything is just an appeal to those things. Then he turns the appeal to theology. Now I want to tell you why theology, what theology has to say about this. Now I want you to remember Solomon. And this is an odd picture here, yet it's something to think. In 1 Kings chapter 11, this is the end of Solomon's life. This is what his reputation was. 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not only was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the father, or was the heart of David his father. That's the testimony of Solomon. Obviously, he did not take his own counsel. Obviously, he fell prey to the very things he was warning his son for. There's a theology that Solomon ditched that he himself taught. Here's the theology in verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. God's omniscience. God is omniscient. He sees all. Typically, a person who would enter into this type of adulterous affair thinks that God doesn't see or ignores God, and no one can find out. We do it all in the dark. We're going to keep it a secret. There's no secret before the eyes of God. Your theology tells you that God sees all. He's omniscient. What's done in secret is not done outside of the eyes of the Lord. An adulterer wrongly believes that he can do this without notice. He's acting like what we call a practical atheist. He might believe in God, but when it comes to the practice, it's as if God doesn't exist. I can do this. I can get away from with this. No, this is the warning. It is God who judges the sexually immoral. It is God who judges those who pervert the marriage and he is watching. He ponders all his paths. There's also a theology of God's justice. Jump ahead to verse 23. This man dies for lack of discipline because of his great folly he is led astray. Because of his great folly he is led astray. He dies for lack of discipline. What's pictured here is God is punishing the sin because God is holy. The theology that God is holy, he must punish sin. He dies because that's the punishment. He's led astray from the path that could have given him life, 
God gave him that life. He's led astray from it. The good news, though, there's hope in the gospel. There's forgiveness. There's repentance and restoration and renewal and righteousness and the Holy Spirit indwelling you as you turn from the sin. But the man who lacks this discipline, who turns from God, the theology of God says there is justice. And last is man's sinfulness. Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. This is the theology of the sinfulness of man. You understand this is an enslaving thing? You understand that you are a slave of this? This is not just I can do this once and then I'm good to go. No, you have just given yourself over to its power. It becomes habitual. The sensual appetites are wedded. The increased desires become an immoral straitjacket. And now he's ensnared. So this is the theology that he tells us about these things. Jesus said that he who sins is a slave to sin. But Jesus also said he sets sinners free or slaves free. The theology of the gospel of Jesus is such that he sets sinners free from their sinful lives. And so there's hope. There's hope. And there's the blessedness to restore marriage and to follow the pattern of marriage, and God will honor that and bless that. I hope this takes all this glamour off the playboy life as we look at what Solomon says. His counsel is don't go away, don't go astray from the pathway I've given you. It will lead to that destructive slavery. There's a bitterness there. There's a regret there. There's a loss of life there. There's a death there. There's a shame there. There's a high-handed rebellion there against the Lord. It will bring disgrace to you. It will bring disgrace to the church and to the family. So flee from that and follow the pathway that God has given us, the blessedness of purity and the blessedness of marriage. It will cost you in the long run if you go the route of sin, but instead rejoice in the marriage covenant and honor the sanctity of marriage. That is the wise life. He said it in Ecclesiastes 9.9, Enjoy life with your wife, with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. The blessedness of marriage. There's a blessing there. There's a joy there. There's a satisfaction there. There's a goodness of life and family and relationships there. There's a holiness there. There's an honor there. There's life there. God ordains it. God honors it. God protects it. And Christ is honored by this. As Christ's church, we need to be the pillar and support of the truth, which means we need to be the pillar and support of such principles as the biblical definition of marriage and the biblical principle of purity in marriage. Let's be those who stand firm in what's holy, what's right, what's pure, and honoring to God and His Word. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we're thankful for your instructions for us. We're thankful for the clarity here, the detail, the reasonableness of this, and the warnings. We thank you, Lord, that you are a a God of grace with a gospel that saves us sinners, restores relationships, repairs marriages. We're grateful, Lord, that you give us strength and guidance. You give us the Holy Spirit. You give us a born-again life that we're able to live in the counsel that you've given in the Word of God. Lord, sanctify us. Sanctify our marriages. Sanctify our minds to renew them according to the truth that you've revealed. Guide us and lead us into what is honorable in the eyes of the Lord, what gives glory to Jesus Christ, who is our bridegroom. And we are thankful, Lord, that the Word of God speaks so clearly to these things, even though this culture today that we live in rejects it and is the complete antithesis of everything we've talked about this morning. Lord, give us strength to stand firm and stand as lights in the darkness and to be faithful examples of those who practice the truth. Lord, if any of us here do not know you, I ask, Lord, that you would open their hearts, convert their hearts, and turn them to the truth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, of which we all are. 
And Lord, if there's any of us who have gone the prodigal life, chosen the pathway that has been described here as destruction, bring us back and remind us of the outcome of the prodigal son. And we can find mercy and grace with you, our Father. And restore us, Lord. Help us to not be practical atheists, but practical Christians who live a wise life. We thank you, Lord, for this morning as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.